Well, welcome to another year and, and for Pedro, a new year, uh, a new school and all. We, um, this is a, a part of a journey that's been going on now since um, 2011. And uh, we started, so many questions started coming in about the atonement, why did Jesus have to die and, and those things. So many questions started coming in uh, in our class discussions about this that I decided to take a detour. And we started studying the atonement, in, uh, particularly the writings of Ellen White, and particularly in Desire of Ages. And we spent quite a few weeks on that, and then the opportunity came to record the class for a wider audience. And so we've been recording uh, since uh, January of 2012 and this begins now it's hard to believe or it was, no it's 2012 that we began the study and it's 2013 that we began to record because we've only recorded two years uh, and it would be three if it was 2012 so in 2013 we began to record and we, we actually backtracked and started the study over so that we wouldn't be starting in the middle and uh, so last year we spent a considerable time in the year on God's wrath looking at it in the Old Testament the New Testament and attempting to get a grasp of that I just want to reiterate briefly uh, that topic and how we resolved it the Bible especially the Old Testament makes God sound extremely angry and it can easily, we can easily read our own selfish natures into that anger and, and perceive God as very wrathful and very, you have to get in good with him. And then that changes everything in terms of salvation because salvation then becomes Jesus appeasing God's wrath so that he can forgive us. As we studied, we came to realize that many places in the Bible uh, describe God's wrath as God letting consequences happen. And those consequences aren't ones he does. They're ones that are the direct result of sin. So, what we came to conclude, based on Romans 1, which gives a very definitive statement, is that God's wrath basically is his, his uh, allowing us the freedom to choose sin rather than him and to, uh, for him to let us go. That wrath means I let you go. What happens to most people when they're let go is that they feel God is angry. That's their perception of that reality. Uh, because without God, with God in our lives, and we don't realize this, we kind of take it for granted. But with God in our lives, we have a sense of His presence. And that presence is love. It gives us security, it gives us hope, it gives us courage gives us the ability to trust him it gives us all of those things when that presence is removed or when we leave that presence maybe we should put it. at first it's possible we don't notice but when we're outside that presence and we think about God it tends to, we tend to feel that he's angry and I think that's where I, we have so many uh, perceptions in the Bible about God's wrath but we also pursued uh, wrath is a metaphor uh, suggesting that 
it's, it really stands for the consequences that happen to us that the ancient Near Eastern mind this is across the board whether it's the Bible or whether it's the ancient Near East the ancient Near Eastern mind saw God's wrath as, as equivalent to bad things happening to them so when bad things happened to them God was angry or the gods were angry um, the other thing we looked at was that in Mesopotamia anger, divine anger is associated with royal anger that is the anger of the king and we paralleled that with the Bible with the fact that in Genesis God is never angry once and Genesis is the book of beginnings it's the book before the monarchy it is a book that really is cast in a non-hierarchical uh, setting it's, Genesis is actually very opposed to hierarchy and once we understand that we can recognize that God seems the most angry in the books of the prophets and the prophets prophesied mostly during the monarchy so where you have angry kings you're going to have a view of God as angry and, and so those are some of the things we looked at and we even looked at Revelation uh, and Babylon's fornication with kings in Revelation 18 the wine of the wrath of her fornication well that fornication is historical that religion and state united in Babylon produced angry kings and angry gods so that you even have texts that will speak of the anger of the king and the anger of the gods in one breath so with that in mind as a background viewing God's wrath as his stepping back and letting us have the consequences of his choice I would like to begin on a note that is not on this handout uh, so I would like to invite you to turn to Hosea 11 because it's easy to then think what God is still angry he's just he's not doing anything to us he's letting us suffer our own consequences and we tend to see him maybe as stepping back and letting us have those consequences rather coldly and darkly without any grief. But one of the places we looked at, Hosea 11 is, Hosea is a minor prophet right after Daniel. If you find Ezekiel, go forward to Daniel, then to Hosea. But I want to reference another text before we look at Hosea. Mark 3. Jesus is about to heal a man with a withered hand. And everybody's watching, ready to pounce on him. You're going to do this on the Sabbath. How dare you? And Jesus looks around at them in anger, Mark says, then comma, grieved at the hardness of heart. So anger and grief go together. And I want to look at Hosea 11 in that light. Uh, we usually take turns reading around the circle. Tara, why don't you start? Take the microphone. Yes, please. Starting the first one. Mm -hmm. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incensed images. It is I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed him. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule them 
because they refuse to repent. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give up? How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. Okay. This is a God who is is crying out. How can I give you up? How can I let you go? This is not something God just does. Well, you don't want me. Bye. <laughs> he, he's not that kind of God. Uh, he's. How many of you here were here for first service? Okay. Mm-hmm. A number of you. You heard Pastor Mark talk about how he pled with his girlfriend, Ruth. Uh, don't you know how much I love you? Uh, and that's. And our, our love is selfish, it's self-centered. Don't you know how much I need you, how much I want you, etc., etc. Uh, God's love is for us. God's love is always unselfish. And that means whatever we do with anger, the thing we have to remember is that it's not selfish anger. It's not anger against someone. It is anger for them. That, that changes everything in terms of how we view the wrath of God. So our discussion now is going to shift from God's anger to salvation and atonement. And the most prevailing view of atonement in Christianity is the view that Jesus died to appease an angry God, or to appease the Father, or to appease himself, as sometimes it's stated. We're going to test that as we move through here. Uh, is the, does the Bible really teach that? And, and how shall we do with some texts uh, that seem to suggest that? So uh, let us begin with, at the beginning. And let's start with Genesis 3. I think before we understand the plan of salvation, we have to understand what went wrong. And that's what these verses suggest. So, um, Genesis 3, and Christina, would you read those verses for us, please? 1 through 5? Yes, please. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what went wrong? What's going on in these verses? He was being tempted by the serpent. Okay, Eve's being tempted by the serpent. Tempted to do what? To eat the fruit that God told them not to. Okay, to eat the fruit that God told them not to. Uh, Anything else going on in these verses? The serpent says, um, did God really say that you will die? Sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Did did God really say? Now, um, if you go to Genesis 2, I want to show you. 
and I believe it's around verse 16. The Lord God commanded the human. It's a very strong verb there. He commanded the human. Eat your fill from all the gardens, trees, and don't eat, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat of it, you will die. Uh, the serpent doesn't say, did God command you? He says, did God say? What does that imply? It implies that the serpent saying is just something that God says, not really important. Okay? Did he, he, did he really mean that? Did he really mean what he said? Was he really clear? Maybe he's not clear. Uh, it's very clear when you read it in, in chapter 2. God says, don't eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. For in the day you eat of it, you will die. Uh, it seems clear enough. But the serpent suggests that God is not being clear He's not meaning what he says or says what he means. What kind of a person is it that doesn't say what they mean or mean what they say? Liars. They're usually a liar. Okay, so right off the bat, he's setting Eve up to suppose that God could be a liar, could be trying to deceive her. Okay, what else is going on? Well, in verse 4, the serpent says, you will not die. So going exactly against what God said. Okay, so he's, he's basically blatantly now saying, God lied to you. There's another way he could be saying it or implying it. God doesn't really know the truth about whether you'll live or die. He's just telling you that to keep you from something good. But in any case, her perception of God is now being twisted and perverted to see God as a deceiver as someone who doesn't mean what he says and say what he means uh, and it's someone who is really trying to maybe deceive them and if nothing else by the end of the story he's lying to them blatantly anything else going on in here? The serpent at the end certainly brings up not only did God lie to you about not dying, but he's also withholding this beautiful knowledge from you. He's saying, like, you will know good and evil. You're going to be like God. So he's presenting them with definitely this temptation to not just distrust God, but to see that he's really hiding something from them, to keep them lower than him. So then they'll want to have this great thing. He takes her, you know, the question we could raise, is about God's original command. Is it a law that he's lying, laying down, or is it or a warning? When when your child, when you're um, you're maybe 15 month old, is headed toward the hot stove, and they're about to put their hand on it, and you say, "Don't touch the hot stove, or you'll get burned." Are you issuing a law? From now on, the law in this home is don't touch the hot stove. Or are you warning your child not to touch the hot stove to protect the child? So much depends on how we see these. Uh, it's a command. You're, you're commanding your child. But is that a law you're issuing? And now we're in a law, a legal situation. 
or is it that you're really warning your child of something that's out there going to hurt that child if the child touches the stove so if that's the case then the serpent takes what God has said clearly as a warning and twists it to a power struggle I think that's what you were alluding to Tara a power struggle that will in which God is going to be he's going to try to win over you and he's going to keep you from something that really would benefit you he just doesn't want you to be like him and like him in the servant's reading is power not character this is not like be like Jesus this way how does that song go? Um, so, yeah. So, how would we characterize a God like this? He's power hungry. He's power hungry. And and what else? Wait, no, which God are we characterizing? The God the serpent is portraying. Oh, selfish. Okay, selfish. An oppressor. An oppressor. Maybe jealous. If he's, if you're not, if he's not, if you are not going to die, and, and this is, this is clearly what the serpent is contending. This, the fruit won't kill you. It won't hurt you. Uh, if you're not going to die, then what's going to happen when you eat the fruit? Well, he says you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Does God know good and evil? Now this is a really loaded question because the word to know in Hebrew is a loaded word. It has multiple meanings. Um, in the next chapter, chapter 4, well, why don't you turn to it and Bianca, why don't you read the first verse. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. She knew Eve. Eve. I mean, he knew Eve. <laughs> Sorry. And, the, and she became pregnant. What kind of knowledge is that? Intimate. Yeah, in fact, my version has knew his wife Eve intimately. But knowing her intimately... Is, is this, it's the same verb as to know that the sun comes up in the morning <laughs> know that um, I got an A on my test know that a mathematical formula is always going to work out the same it's the same word for know it's just that the context demands a different meaning and that, uh, one thing you need to know about Hebrew is that every Hebrew word has more than one meaning uh, so, this, this means no as in having intercourse. And intercourse on a level, not just... Uh, there's another word for intercourse, that man lies with a woman. Okay, in Hebrew. Uh, that's the biological kind of intercourse. This is a kind of intercourse that involves a total holistic experience with another human being. An intimate experience. So now, back to... Genesis 3 the tree of knowledge of good and evil if God knows good and evil 
is this an intimate knowledge of good and evil so that he is maybe the cause of evil? Has he experienced evil? On what level has he experienced evil? Has he experienced evil from having evil done to him? Or has he experienced evil that he has done to others? There's just all of this embedded in the text that we tend to glide right over. Uh, But it's a huge question that the serpent is raising. You will see things clearly. See, up to this time, Eve, things have been pretty muddy for you. You haven't seen God clearly for who he really is. He really knows good and evil. What does that mean? Now, if you, if you read the first, the first story of Genesis uh, creation, you remember the refrain that takes place at the end of every day, and God saw that it was good, and, and, and so everything is good. Evil lurks in the background with the deep and the sea and all those elements that are... Um, metaphors we would see them as metaphors ancient Near Eastern saw them as mythopoeic images where uh, they represented chaos or evil but God transforms chaos and evil in Genesis 1 into good he sends light into the darkness he brings land out of the sea and out of the deep Uh, he brings vegetation he brings life and everything is very good So certainly God knows what is good intimately because he created good. That's the message in Genesis 1. What about you? Can you see how embedded in these few verses are the implications that God is selfish, prideful, power hungry, a liar, deceptive, not really someone you can trust. What do we usually say about the fall? What, what is the fall? What is the cause of the fall? Anybody? <laughs> Globe, you look like you're about ready to talk. The cause of the fall was the, was the decision to disobey. Disobedience yeah. is the cause of the fall. Is it as simple as that? Now that you've looked at the implications of what the serpent says? You know, if uh, a two-year-old disobeys mommy, we say that they're testing mommy and they're trying to find their boundaries. You know, where, where did my boundaries end? Where are you going to say the absolute no and, and hold the line? Uh, or can I manipulate? And, and uh, we're, we're born into this world in a, in a rather sinful state and so we will test the boundaries I remember the first time I did it or the first time that I remember doing it <laughs> um, I was about two and mom asked me to pick up my toys and I didn't want to do that and I just looked at her and she had this little habit of saying your name and then one and your name again and then two and you knew that by, t- by ten she would say before I count to ten uh, you know that by 10, something unpleasant was going to happen, but I never knew quite what because, well, I shouldn't say I never knew. I, I watched my older brother <laughs> <laughs> find out what unpleasant things happened. Um, but I finally, I think by the time I was born, my mother had stopped spanking him and she used other methods. So 
I remember this one day, I, she, I, was, I was not going to do it, and she said one, and she said two, and then she said three, and I decided, I think I better act. And so I picked up my toys. Uh, we're born into this kind of a sinful state of, of uh, power-upping one another and testing our boundaries and, and flaunting ourselves a bit. Pride uh, begins early. But imagine a perfect world where Adam and Eve have never done that. They're as vulnerable and malleable as a perfect child that doesn't have a a stubborn will (laughs) at all. And so with what went wrong was not as simple as, well, I don't know why God told me not to do that, even though he said why. So I think I'll just take the fruit. Eve didn't tempt herself. She was led to be tempted by the serpent. This is the kidnapping act that Pastor Mark was talking about this morning. This is how he got it, is by deception. The truth is that all of the qualities that the serpent paints on God, he has. How does he know to paint God like that? <laughs> well, he's that way. He invented those qualities, invented, uh, dis- uh, invented selfishness and pride and jealousy and deception and lying. So if it isn't as simple as disobedience, you see in the, in the model that most Christians look at, and, or many Christians look at, a sin is a legal problem. Sin is, is something you do to, you break the law and you deserve to be punished. And there's truth in that. That's a, that's a, a thin line view, uh, kind of like an outline of a summary of what happened. But the cause of sin is not disobedience. It is deception. Disobedience is the result of that deception. The deception led us to distrust God. And we ultimately came to see Him as vengeful, unforgiving, and severe, as a tyrant. Someone who had to be placated. That is all part of, of this process that the serpent initiated. Because, you know, it, his tempting us didn't end with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, did it? Mm-hmm. He's been tempting us ever since to think these things about God. Uh, and, you know, we, I live in a generation that came out of rather strong legalism in the Adventist church. And sometimes we those of us in my age bracket, we will remember our past and how bad it was. And we start thinking that distrust is where we understand sin now. But back then, we understood it as simply breaking the law. And the remedy was that Jesus took our place and paid the price for breaking the law.
so that we could be forgiven because we couldn't be forgiven unless Jesus died. Well, there's truth in that. But if sin isn't caused by disobedience, if sin is caused by misrepresentations of God that deceived us and caused us to distrust God, then where does the remedy go? What is the remedy for that? More knowledge of God. Someone has to come into our sphere who can adequately represent God. Can they know? Isn't that what would have to happen? Have you ever been afraid of anyone? What would it take for you not to be afraid of that person? Anyone been mean to you? It caused you to be afraid of them. What would it take for you to not be afraid? For him to experience whatever I experience. To for them to like take my place, kind of like for them to feel the same fear that I felt. For me mm. to be afraid of them, then they would. I would kind of in a very unholy place in my heart. It, I would want them to experience the exact fear and situation that they put me in. And hopefully that would not make them further abusive to you, but would make them empathetic toward what they, you and sorry for what they had done? My first answer was they could, you know, disappear off the face of the planet. But <laughs> 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 that was an appropriate answer because I was cool. So. But yeah, I think that would be the second, not maybe empathetic, but to understand that they have come to my level or that they could finally understand what they did. Okay, so they could, find, they could come to your level, they could finally understand and, and empathet- empathetically understand, experience what you did. Now that's very interesting. That, that's extremely interesting. Now, let's change this scenario just a little. Suppose the person you're afraid of is you're afraid of them not because of anything they've done to you but because you have misperceived that they have done something to you or will do something to you. What would it take for you to come to trust them again? The, the, most, the greatest story I've ever heard on this uh, comes from Herb Montgomery. Yeah, some of you may remember that a year ago he came ago October he came here uh, and he I don't think he told the story that weekend that he was here but um, he tells the story of how his earliest memory of his parents was them fighting over him at the breakfast table he was eating Cheerios or something like that and, and uh, they were fighting and it wasn't long until they divorced he grew up with mom pretty much um, rarely saw his father and his mom painted a very negative picture of his dad and accused him of not paying child support and so Herb had a terrible picture of his father and a terrible relationship with him and so one day he, he had a girlfriend and he wanted to marry her and he proposed to her and she said um, not until you resolve your relationship with your father and you have a good relationship with your dad. Well, he really loved her. That was a big price to pay. 
But he decided to try it, and so he and she visited his dad. And as they were sitting there, she asked his father, So why, why did you walk out on Herb, and why did you not take care of his needs? Why didn't you send him child support payments, or something along those lines? And a little later, his father took her into, the, into another room and he said, I want to show you something. And he pulled out a box. He said, I want you to go through that box. In the box were filed every receipt of child payments he had made during Herb's growing up years until he reached 18. And he said, I wanted to be in your life but I wasn't allowed to be well you imagine the transformation Herb has of his father at that point it's huge that's what I think is happening here but I like what you said Glow, because what would it take for us to trust God again is for God to come and experience the fear that we experience to experience the damage of Satan's lies that we have experienced to experience our experience and isn't that what the gospel is about how God did that so I, I appreciate that comment very much because it, it sets the stage very well for what we're going to be looking at you see in a purely legal setting, the experience is very different than in, say, a family setting uh, or in a natural setting or some other setting. And the Bible, of course, has many metaphors. I think the metaphors the Bible tends to favor are more in the family setting than they are in the legal setting or they're more in the, in the setting of nature than in the legal setting. Uh, so we're going to be looking at all of this as, as we work through this. Because you mentioned God's, or, or the person who you're afraid of suffering what you have. What is our biggest fear? I may vary from person to person, I realize. But what is the biggest human fear? death where did we get that fear was it from God warning us in the day you eat of it you shall surely die or was it from the serpent saying no you won't die you'll be transformed to be like God you'll have enough power to offset this malicious tyrant and, and this abuser uh, where did our fear come from what has happened to that that belief that we won't die. What? Where did humanity take that belief? Well, I believe uh, I believe that um, people are believing in the, the immortality of the soul. Okay, that there is that we really don't die completely. A part of us lives on. Um, where did that take us? Into what belief? Well, let me, let me give you a little history of this. Early on, ancestors 
ancestor worship became the vogue. Why? Well, if your dead loved ones lived on, you want to honor them and worship them, or they might come back to haunt you and do you harm. And especially if your ancestor was abusive, you can see where that would lead. And I really think that the ancient pictures of God are rooted in ancestor worship. So you want to appease and please various entities today, that is various ethnic groups today, still believe that their ancestors are going to be unhappy with them at least if they don't do certain things after their death. So if, if that's true, what else did it lead to? The idea of an ever-burning hell, which is, by the way, believed by many world religions. An ever-burning hell. That God would tyrannically plunge people into hell and torture them through eternity for their brief life on earth. You know, I mean, the average lifespan of a person is probably, throughout history, is probably about 70 years because there was a lot of infant mortality at other time periods. Um, so imagine living 70 years and then be tortured for it for eternity. It's a, it's a horrible view of God. What about the, the better view that God doesn't torture people but that he kills them? We call that annihilation. Is that view make us less afraid of God? It should. But does it make, it not, make us not afraid of God? Those are the things that we came to believe. So that when Jesus comes and he's going to experience what we have in, in our pain with sin and our pain with believing Satan's lies about God, if he's going to experience that, he has to experience death, doesn't he? Because that's our fear. And he has to experience death to show what causes death. That's, how he, that's why Jesus had to come and why he had to die. To experience what we have. To experience death. As Hebrews puts it, to taste death for every man, every woman. And by doing that, reveal the character of God as he really is. So that we can get out of this crevasse that we're in, merely telling us to trust God without knowing the truth about him vis-a-vis -vis li the lies we've believed, is not enough. Merely to tell us now, just obey that's all you need to do is obey. It's not enough to heal the relationship. So we're going to be looking at, at salvation and atonement through this uh, quarter and possibly well into winter quarter. Depends on how long. You see we only got through one verse. I mean, one text. This is typical. We'll probably pick up a little bit of speed a little later, but we have a lot of ground to cover as you can see just myriads of text on this 26 page paper <laughs> so the journey has begun for this quarter and I hope that as we go for a long time you're going to be just looking at different images and not having a clear perception of where we're going but we'll have spots where you see clearly uh, and then at the end we'll hopefully be able to pull that all together 
particularly as we move into Romans in the New Testament. Any questions before we close? Let's bow our heads with prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that we can look at Scripture through fresh eyes and see that the sin problem is far greater than mere disobedience, than mere, even mere distrust, that it is rooted in a disrupted relationship with you because of believing lies about you. Pray that this year we may so study about you and so come to understand you that we come to see you with new eyes and see the kind of person you really are and come to trust you intimately to the point where we're willing to listen and to receive instruction. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.